Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. By the way, um, you can hear us on the Internet, live streaming on the Internet. Just dial up uh, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. You'll hear us all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and that includes the Milky Way, I think. And by the way, during the week, Fox Business Network, FBN, the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m., every day on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, and if for some crazy reason you can't get there at 4, why then just text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. Not going to be a problem. Anyway, I want to begin with the end of gasoline-powered automobiles and probably the end of fossil fuels altogether, oil and gas, and refined products, if the Biden administration has its way and if the EPA, Environment Protection Agency, gets its way. I mean, they just published new ultra-stringent tailpipe regulations to stop carbon emissions, and these are so stringent that, in effect, it would end the gas-powered car and substitute, of course, electric vehicles, EVs, okay? These are new vehicle emission standards, and it really spells the end of gas-powered cars. Now, here's the fun part of this. Talking to Steve Miller last night on the show, my pal, former Trump colleague, if you're going to end... If you're going to end gas-powered cars or you're going to end ICEs, right, internal combustion engine, if you're going to end it, and that would be what, the end of 125-year technology or more than that, don't you think somebody in the House or the Senate should vote on it? I mean, they represent the people. And the people actually don't want electric vehicles. I mean, some do. Some do. But it's less than 20%. That's what the polling data shows. So I would say to you, the EPA lacks the authority to make this move. And talking to some people uh, on the Fox Business Show, uh, Thursday, Friday, uh, they're going to go to work on it. They're going to, but you see, I mean, think about this. These regulatory agencies have run amok. Uh, Steve Forbes, who's going to be here, be here in a little while, the great Steve Forbes, talks about modern socialism through the regulatory state. These central planners, the SEC, the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, the Federal Reserve Board, 
the EPA. These guys think they're running the country. They're not elected. They just think they're all powerful. And they can have a command and control over the entire economy. I mean, in this case, think about this. Not only would they be banning gas-powered cars and forcing electric vehicles. By the way, the car, they would run the car industry. The car industry is America's fifth largest industry, new car sales. Fifth largest industry. I mean, you got to love that. You just have to love that. What is it? It's, uh, it's, uh, ba- uh wait, first, I mean, uh, banks are first, healthcare second, cosmetics third, hospitals fourth, automobiles fifth, fifth largest industry, over one trillion in sales, 1.2 trillion in sales. They're going to run that. The trouble is people don't want it. I mean, you look at poll after poll, roughly 8% right now, roughly 8% of Americans have an EV. By the way, Tesla is the biggest EV maker, Elon Musk, my hero. Good for him. You want an EV? You can buy a nice Tesla. Free speech Tesla. Libertarian Tesla. Free market Tesla. Okay, I love the guy. Survey after survey shows that 50 to 60% of folks have no interest in EVs. Now, one big reason for that is they're very expensive. Right, the average electron, electric vehicle is about fifty-eight thousand dollars. The average new car today is about forty-six thousand dollars. But really, most of those EVs are even more expensive than that. The middle class can't afford it. The lower middle class can't afford it. Lower income folks certainly can't afford it. So they can't afford it. They don't want it. We don't have enough charging stations. We don't have enough infrastructure to supply the electricity. Electricity grid is not uh, ready for this. We can't get our hands on the minerals, you know, cobalt and lithium and copper uh, that would are necessary to make the batteries. Why? Well, because the Interior Department and the EPA and other agencies won't let, give permits for drilling. I mean, for example... You've had this controversy in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, the so-called Iron Range next to Lake Superior, which is tremendous, tremendous reservoir of all these important minerals that will go into batteries. You got uh, reservoirs in Texas, you got them up in the Dakotas, but they can't get permits. But on the other hand, the EPA is going to be forcing everybody to drive EVs even though it's a gift, a bailout of, you guessed it, China. China has the minerals. America doesn't. And we don't have enough electricity. We don't have a grid that could accommodate all the plug-ins and charges, so forth and so on. You get the picture. But I'm just saying, what Steve Miller said last night, don't you think the people... In this country, 50 to 60 percent who have no interest in unaffordable EVs, don't you think their representatives in the House and the Senate should vote on banning combustible engines? Don't you think so? 
makes sense to me. I mean, that's what a representative democracy is all about. Internal combustion engine? Okay, you want to get rid of it? Let's vote on it. Wait a second, they're not voting on it. This is like Joe Stalin in the old Soviet Union. We're just going to take it. Take it away. Well, not so fast. There are going to be a lot of challenges. In fact, the Supreme Court, West Virginia versus the EPA, said, wait a minute. If there's no precise law, you can't do this. By the way, the Wall Street Journal editorial today, I think it was today, this morning, Supreme Court ruled Federal Trade Commission, Securities Exchange Commission, wait a minute. Hold your horses. You guys cannot make all these decisions unless there's clear legislative legal mandate from both houses of Congress. Slow down. You're not running the country. The EPA is going to fall underneath that, too. You wait and see. And then there's something called the RAINS Act, R-E-I-N-S, which says that's been floating around. House Republicans very much in favor of it. Democrats, of course, who love big government socialism don't like it. But it says uh, any regulation, I believe over $100 million, has got to be passed as a law in both houses of Congress, the RAINS Act. So that's another avenue besides lawsuits and besides legal challenges in general. So this is a good thing, the idea that people can strike back. What's not a good thing is this powerful regulatory agency that wants to end the internal combustion engine. It wants to end gas-powered cars. And by the way, let's be very clear about this. It wants to end fossil fuels. This is another backdoor way for the Biden administration, driven by all these crazy Green New Deal, climate change, obsessive socialists. This is the way of getting at fossil fuels. After all, kids... If you don't have internal combustion engines, then that's going to really reduce the demand for gasoline, wouldn't you say? And that's going to really reduce the demand for oil. And that's going to really reduce the fracking for oil and gas. So this is a way to destroy fossil fuels. That's what this is. And it's also a way, socialist style, to take over the fifth largest industry, and make no mistake about it, you let them take over the car business, they will, or other regulatory agencies, attempt to take over other industries. I thought America was great with the greatest economy in the history of history because of our free market, free enterprise capitalist principles. But what the Bidens want to do is take over the economy using central planning socialist principles. Let the government run the economy, a so-called planned economy, rather than a free enterprise, free market economy. There's a big difference, don't you see? All these European countries that are so heavily socialist, that's why their economies are stagnant. Unfortunately, despite the great works of Margaret Thatcher many decades ago, Britain has returned 
to a more labor-oriented, labor party socialist approach, their economy has gone stagnant. That's why these South American economies have stalled. Even Chile has stalled. That's why China, look, China, the socialist country, Communist Party of China, they had a one strong economy when they had free market reforms, the great Deng Xiaoping. But that's now faded away to, once again, a statist, a state-run economy under Xi. Even India, which is a democracy, and a great democracy, and India is a friend of the United States, but their bureaucratic economy is stagnate because they don't have the true free enterprise, although... There is hope for India. Anyway, I think you get the picture. This EPA dictum would want, uh, in 10 years, they want, I guess, two-thirds of the cars in this country to be electric. Two-thirds. Less than 20% of the population wants it. Right now, only 8% own it. This is craziness. Banning gas-powered cars, internal combustion engine, really? Nobody voted on this. Is this a step too far by Joe Biden and his people? Of course it is. And this is something that has to be stopped. The basic elements, the basic principles of free enterprise capitalism, free market capitalism, are being slaughtered and crushed by Joe Biden if we let him have his way, if we let him have his way. And that's why the battle has to be joined on economic issues like this. We cannot ban gasoline. Look, final thought. If electric vehicles are so good, right, if they're affordable, if they're easily refueled and recharged, if people like them, then they'll buy them. They'll buy them. No one outlawed horse and buggy 150 years ago, whatever, 130 years ago. No one had to outlaw horses. No one had to outlaw buggy. People just went and bought Henry Ford's Model T. If this product... This EV product is so good that Americans exercising their freedom to choose will buy it. And then the supply chains will be built up by private enterprise because the consumer demand is there. But you can't jam it down our throats. That is not democracy. And that's going to be the battle in the coming days, weeks, months electric vehicles. We'll see. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. I'm going to raise another subject quickly, and then we will talk about it with the great Steve Forbes on the other side of the break. Uh, there's a piece in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, a very good piece, uh, by a researcher at the Manhattan uh, Institute here in New York City, a chap named Judge Glock. Anyway, the thrust of the piece, looking at a lot of polling data down through the years, the GOP, the Republican Party, does much better politically, electorally, 
when it focuses on limited government and economic growth rather than the culture war wedge issues. Very important piece. And I talked about it last night on the uh, Fox Business Show. And I want to talk about it some more. doesn't mean that cultural issues like abortion or teaching in the schools curriculum, good behavior, good history, doesn't mean the cultural issues don't exist. doesn't mean they shouldn't be discussed. It does mean, however, they shouldn't be obsessed and that the fact remains, Republicans historically, and this is what the polling data shows, GOP has always done better when it emphasizes the economic issues. Limited government, low taxes, minimal regulations, a sound king dollar to fight inflation. I mean, you look... Uh, the expansion of government, I mean, here, if every time if you ask people, do you want more government services and higher taxes? By 70% or more, they say no. If you ask them, do you want less government services, fewer government services, and lower taxes, by 70% or more, they'll say yes. And this is the GOP's natural base, Republican Party natural base. It's an economic growth and prosperity base. And that's where the emphasis has got to be for the coming 2024 election cycle. This is particularly the case for national races, House, Senate, and especially the presidential race, especially the presidential race. Again, it doesn't mean not to talk about social issues. I regard myself, look, I'm a pro-life guy, a strong pro-life guy, remain so. I want to close the border down south like anybody else. I want the parents to uh, run their kids' education, things of that sort. I want to be tough on crime, all that. But it's a matter of emphasis. And when the GOP gets too tangled up in these wedge issues, these social wedge issues, they don't do well. They don't do well. And I would say particularly abortion. You have to be very careful here. Economic growth and prosperity is a much more popular, politically effective kind of issue for the GOP. We'll talk some more about this with the great Steve Forbes on the other side of the break. I'm Kudlow. Hang with us. Much more to do today. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. The Larry Kudlow Show. We bring on my great friend Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, author of the important book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you. You're great. Um, I want to start talking about the uh, EPA and EVs. And here's what Steve Miller put it. Uh, my pal, uh, former Trump advisor, put it pretty well last night on our show. He said, you know, if we're going to abolish the internal combustion engine, don't you think we ought to vote on it? <laughs> Which I thought was just absolutely perfect. EPA, yeah. the EPA basically wants to abolish the internal combustion engine, right? Uh, 
you know, two-thirds of the cars uh, in 10 years have to be electric vehicles. And nobody voted on this. Nobody said this was a good idea. Nobody said we wanted to give up gas-powered automobiles. Nobody said we wanted to end, whatever, 150 years of technology. How can this be? Why do these agencies have this kind of central planning control? Well, it's uh, modern socialism. And by the way, that 67% goal, if you had a real free market, uh, EV sales would probably be 6.7% <laughs> at the end of the decade. And, 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 and so uh, what, 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 th- what this has done is, I think, brought into sharp relief this whole modern state, administrative socialist state, where it's, you don't nationalize things, you do it by regulation. And it's absolutely egregious that an agency could absolutely take over, destroy one industry, take over another industry. You know, when the government uh, forced GM into bankruptcy 15 years ago, they said uh, General Motors become government motors. Mm. Well, the whole auto industry is becoming government motors now. And it's not just the uh, auto industry. It's not just fossil fuels. Banking, they're sinking their uh, hooks in. We all know what they're pushing for in health care, expanding Medicaid and the like to get a single-payer system, which would destroy innovation and to push us back in terms of fighting diseases. So uh, this is a, a, an amazing push in a, from a relatively close election in 2020, mm. uh, no real mandate in 2022. And now, though, they like it's the October Revolution in Russia, 1917. They're taking over everything. And I think the American people have to be rallied uh, to it that, uh, no, you make the choices. And so, you know, now they're after air conditioners. I think they're after air conditioners because they want to do away with Florida and Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Free, free, and, and, the free states of Florida and Texas. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So I think uh, the Republicans have to learn in the next few months to refine these issues, that this is about the fundamental what kind of country do we want to become? Do we want to become a socialist country, a semi-Cuba, mm. or do we want uh, the old, um, the traditional America of freedom? And one thing government can never do is do the kind of spontaneous entrepreneurial things that you see entrepreneurs doing all the time, improving our lives. Uh, you see it in health care, where uh, great things are coming in terms of being able to replace hearts and lungs, uh, pu- putting in uh, devices that can detect cancer before it happens. So you get the immune system ready instead of uh, responding too late and getting overwhelmed. Good big things are coming. That's done by people who are not beholden to politics and government, who test it out in the marketplace. Most things don't work, but when they do, by golly, we all benefit. You know, um, it just occurs to me that if people want to buy electric vehicles, if they can afford it, they want it and so forth, let them do it. Sure. We don't have to we don't have to bribe them, we don't have to subsidize them, we don't have to abolish uh gas powered cars. It's another thing Steve Miller said, you know, a hundred years ago with Henry Ford or whatever it is, hundred and twenty five years ago with Henry Ford, we didn't have to abolish horses and buggies. People chose not to use them, but to use these newfangled internal combustion engine driven cars. So and when the car really came into its own, uh, really boomed in the 1920s, you didn't have the government uh, subsidizing gasoline stations. You know, before huh. uh, the invention of the gasoline, before the invention of the gas pump, you bought your kerosene and gasoline in a can from a hardware store. Huh. But entrepreneurs came up with the idea of a filling station, as we call them, 
uh, gas pumps and the like. That was done by entrepreneurs and free enterprise. And so you didn't need government subsidies. When there was a need, the market, i.e. people, entrepreneurs, met it. Do you see, um, you know, amen to that. There's uh, the journal, Wall Street Journal editorial this morning, Supreme Court 9, administrative state 0. Now, this is good. Supreme Court on Friday, yesterday, dealt the administrative state another blow with a 9-0 decision holding that individuals and businesses harpooned by an independent agency don't have to suffer a tortuous government adjudication to challenge its constitutionality in federal court. They were aiming, Steve, at the Federal Trade Commission and the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC. But this follows on the uh, West Virginia versus the EPA uh, decision. So I think the court... Which tends to be, which is now the new court, uh, the conservative court is rather pro-business, uh, leveling the playing field. They're going to help, I think, appeal all this EPA nonsense. That's right, and it's a it's a pro-liberty court. Uh, getting back to what made this country uh, unique, and uh, and and the uh, I think uh, the whole administrative state, as you know, started in the late 1800s when the idea grew up that experts could run things. And uh, so let them run things and all will be well. Well, the experts uh, turn out not to know a lot. And uh, you see it in this whole thing on the alternative fuels, as uh, Bjorn Longborg and others have pointed out. Mm. In the last 20 years, we've spent $5 trillion on alternative fuels. And the amount of uh, energy still coming from uh, fossil fuels has gone from 86 to 84 percent, a 2 percent gain. For five trillion, mm. and just ask these these extreme greenies, what could that five trillion have done to fight diseases, cleaner water, uh, new products and services to improve our lives instead of this wasteful crony stuff that is reeks of politics and waste, and also bad for the environment, ripping up the earth for all these money, forty times more lithium we need. Where's that going to come from? By the way, you're right. You know these. Um these wind farms destroy the environment. Yes, they do. I mean, hundreds of acres. And whales. <laughs> right, and they're killing whales. That's right. You know, I said that on the air because there was evidence of that. Uh, a bunch of lefty uh, blog sites uh, went after me in these lefty magazines. But you see it more and more evidence of whales washing up on the beach because of these offshore uh, wind machines. I mean, what good does that do? Answers it doesn't. Very little. And uh, our, our friend Mark Mills points out, you take a couple of these wind farms, you know, each wind farm is 10 square miles, and uh, they, they, the uh, windmills have nine, and each of these farms have 900 tons for the blades of unrecyclable plastic. You take a couple of those wind farms, they have more unrecyclable plastic mm. than all the straws and plastic cups in the world. Mm. <laughs> it's Unbelievable. Nuts. And one of the things I hope Kevin McCarthy does in these upcoming negotiations on the debt is go beyond just the debt ceiling and demand in writing. Where are these minerals going to come from? Mm. We won't fund the EPA's expansion on this unless you spell out where the minerals going to come from. Mm. What mining are you going to uh, approve? Make them spell it out instead of this uh, fantasy stuff. They call it dreaming, these far leftists. I call it nightmares. <laughs> yes. Well, they have the uh, the HR one is a pretty good beginning for permitting. Yes, it is. You know, for permitting. 
Um, they may have to bring in something called the RAINS Act, uh, yes. which uh, Scalise mentioned, Steve Scalise mentioned uh, on the show yesterday afternoon. Uh, but I think the courts will have a big role in this. I mean, I think the Supreme Court will look kindly on lawsuits brought to lower federal courts to stop these uh, regulatory behemoths. As you've said all along, you said this for two years, uh, it's modern socialism through the regulatory state. Um, and you're mentioning that uh, that uh, Wall Street Journal piece editorial on that Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. What's astonishing is, Nine zero. Yeah, isn't that yeah? Saying, that, uh, that uh, you don't have to go through all the regulatory rigmarole to uh, file a lawsuit about the constitutionality of these things. That's huge. Gosh, you're right, Justice Elena Kagan. I guess. My, Can my, you believe it? My favorite <laughs> lib. Uh, I think she went to Princeton, by the way. Just saying. Yes, yeah, she did. You and me. Anyway, Justice <laughs> Elena Kagan explained that both parties in the two cases allege they are being subjected to unconstitutional agency authority, a proceeding by an unaccountable administrative law judge. Boy, that's that's great. You know, we got to talk to her pretty soon. She's going to become a supply sider. <laughs> right, free market. Out. Well, mir- miracles happened. Miracles happened. <laughs> so let me ask you about. Uh, well, yeah, I want to keep you for. The, let, I tell you what. Let's take a break. Let's take a break here because I want to ask you about this Wall Street Journal piece yesterday that the GOP does best when it touts limited government, and then I want to ask yeah. you why the why the gold price is soaring so much. We haven't really solved any of these inflation problems. Anyway, folks, we are talking to the great Steve Forbes, chairman, editor in chief of Forbes Media author of the very important book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. By the way, Steve, um, FYI, Art Laffer was talking about gold and commodity price rolls last night on our show uh, as monetary tools. Very, very interesting that he's doing that, uh, which you've advocated for so long, and I've tried my best. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with the great Steve Forbes. Hang with us. Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking with the great Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, author of the important book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, How to Fix It. I might also add a two-time presidential candidate who won a number of primaries, and uh, I was a backer of it, of course. Steve, a piece in the journal yesterday, very interesting. I don't know the chap. Uh, Judge Glock of the Manhattan Institute. I think he's their director of research. But anyway, he reviews a whole bunch of polls that shows the GOP should really not even think about abandoning its message of limited government and economic growth. Limited government meaning less spending and lower taxes. And he says not to, not to ignore the culture war issues, but to put them in their proper perspective, not to obsess about it. And he argues uh, that the real populist message is that the majority of Americans believe that government is too large and taxes are too high. And he says, and you know this as well as anybody, uh, down through the years, Gallup has, has polled for decades. Uh, do, you, you know, do you want higher, uh, more government services and higher taxes? Seventy percent, some odds say no. You want lower government services and lower taxes. Seventy percent say yes. And it's a message that's going to be especially important in the 2024 election. So uh, 
culture war issues have their place, but um, custodians of growth has got to be paramount. Well, that's right. And uh, one of the one of the things that uh, you learn from uh, history, our history going back to the 1920s and other countries, is that the whole social environment improves when things are improving, when people can look to the future with confidence mm-hmm. that, uh, that the things are going to get better, their chances of getting ahead in life are going to get better. And so the whole mood of the country changes. And uh, that's why it was sort of disturbing in recent years. Some members of our the Republican Party said, oh, Reagan is, you know, that stuff is old. Uh, we got to get modern. We got to get uh, with the zeitgeist and not realizing that the American people want an environment in conditions where they can improve, as Lincoln put it, their lot in life. Mm. And so uh, all the well, when we talk about spending, that's your money. When we talk about taxes, that's your resources you're creating. And so they're all means to an end, stable dollar, less regulation, lower taxes to enable you to enjoy a better life, have the opportunity for a better life. And people want that kind of optimistic message. And the first candidate who really spells it out, like Reagan did, and you, you were there in the early 1980s, the 80 campaign, uh, Prop 13 starting California back in 1978, mm. candidates who get onto that message I think are going to get real traction. People want to move ahead. Well, you were there too. You were part of the Reagan administration, as I was. But I think, I think it's really important. I mean, I, I just don't like to. I, here, the the bad news is a smart guy like Ron DeSantis is getting bogged down in a social issues dispute with with Walt Disney. Okay, I mean, I don't see that. Uh, as anything but something that should be settled. Holman Jenkins yeah, wrote about and, it this morning. He, he, he wrote a good piece on it. And the point is, uh, Disney way overstepped its bounds yep. and they got slapped down, rightly so. Okay, they realized their mistake. And so uh, you settle the thing and move on. Yes. And because uh, there are other issues out there. Well, the good and, news uh, is, uh, the good news is, DeSantis. Gave, giving a good speech attacking the Federal Reserve's bungling. You bet. Right? See, that's – no, no, but that that's the good, right? Yeah, that's absolutely. the kind of economic uh, stewardship message we need. Challenge the authority. Now, that's DeSantis. He should keep up with that. And also yesterday, Trump put out another good deregulation white paper, so that's good. You know, these are the issues that will resonate. Yes. And because uh, people want to know, okay, uh, pe- people don't want to be told that the rut we're in is the is the future, the new normal. And uh, they want to know, okay, we've got these problems. What do we do to move ahead? How do how, how do we pull ourselves out? And uh, that kind of messaging is what's going to resonate with them. And also, uh, which is uh, really uh, just sadly beginning to rise up, we have a disastrous situation around the world terms of our defense and foreign policy. Mm. And uh, that's extremely dangerous. And as we learned from uh, the Reagan years, the 80s, the only way you get out of that is with a vibrant economy, mm. with high tech, rebuilding our military and letting the world know where we're not going to let the bad guys dominate the world. Yeah, peace through strength. you got to have strength yes. at home, right, in order yes. to keep the peace abroad. I mean, I think that's such a phenomenal lesson. That should not be lost. Uh, and you're right. Your other point, though, I love that point because 
when you have a lot of pessimism and you have a failing economy, then all these social divisions tend to come up, uh, you know, above water to the fore. But if yes. you have you know, poisons the environment, right? Political, social it's, environment. It's not a happy country, Steve. And it's no, it it's, isn't. It's not a happy country because it's not enjoying prosperity. You saw all those polls from the University of Chicago about pessimism about the future. It's just not a happy country. No, and uh, and uh, pe- people people want to be happy. This is not the natural state of the American uh, people. It's not what we are not why we created our country. It was uh, people a chance to uh, move forward. You know, that's why people came to our shores. And uh, and when we get these bad periods like we had in the seventies, malaise and all of that, people knew it was unnatural, and they're looking for ways to get out of it, and they're positive ways. And uh, this is why this whole thing on uh, on uh, things like Social Security and Medicare, the way you deal with those is with prosperity mm. and uh, and uh, on health care, mm. you know, the putting power in the hands of patients, mm. which is beginning to happen. A real consumer market will turn what looks like a total drain on the economy mm-hmm. into the most vibrant industry possible. Everyone's concerned about health. It's a huge opportunity to get these things right. So, uh, last point, why is gold so strong? Uh, gold is strong because of the fears that the Federal Reserve is going to end up, when things go down, uh, printing a lot of money again. Yeah. And uh, that's why gold took a little bit of hit uh, on Friday, was uh, because, uh, well, it looked like the Federal Reserve was uh, not going to uh, ease up, you know, with the mm. bad numbers. So, the markets are confused. Uh, People and the, the volatility the gold price shows that uh, the Fed, no central banker, amazingly, Larry, talks about the integrity and the value of a currency. Mm. They, they they ignore it, and uh, so we, we're in the mess we're in today. The Phillips curve, the idea that you conquer inflation by trashing the economy, throwing people out of work, is still alive and well everywhere, which is astonishing. You know, Dad. Art Laffer last night on the show said. Very, very directly, Steve, that uh, you, you know, Volcker used to look at spot commodity indexes, and Art said there's nothing wrong with using gold and commodity indexes as guidelines to the health of the dollar. And if we Absolutely. really, you know, if we want King Dollar, uh, we, and we want to be assured reliably, right, uh, why not use those tried and true methods? I know you've preached this for a million years. Uh, but I think it's important to, to raise. If DeSantis wants to attack the Fed, which is good, um, you know, hopefully he can develop some alternatives and come up with some positive ideas. Well, that's right. And the whole idea of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, 12 people, seven permanent members, can guide the American economy, 330 million people and 8 billion people around the world, fine-tune it with their tools, is so preposterous. I think when historians look back, hopefully the right ones, uh, they're going to say, what are the people thinking that this group could manipulate interest rates and guide the activities of mm. tens of millions of people? Mm. Preposterous and dangerous. Hell, there's only one EPA administrator. You talk about King George III, the tyrant. My right. goodness, he had nothing on these people. <laughs> I, know. It's, I, I don't even think there's a board. There's just one administrator. Anyway, Steve Forbes, Forbes Media, thank you ever, ever so much. Great stuff to start off the show. Folks, 
Take a quick break. Other side of the break, Ambassador John Bolton's going to talk about some of the foreign policy problems that Steve Forbes was referring to. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. I want to bring in my friend, Ambassador John Bolton, former U.S. National Security Advisor, former ambassador to the United Nations. He's now the chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom and his book, the Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Thank you, John. Thanks for coming. Glad to be on. with you, Larry. Appreciate it. Glad yes. to do it. So you got one of these blockbuster articles that you put out from time to time in the Wall Street Journal, a new American grand strategy to counter Russia and China. I just want to ask you at the top, uh, before we get to the, your bullets on how we should proceed, you know, it's Russia-China. You've got Saudis and Iran like really all of a sudden uh then i'm reading in the paper this morning or yesterday uh brazil left-wing lula brazil and uh and china and then there's north korea china iran i mean it just seems to me all these things all these alliances have gotten stronger and developed more under joe biden and biden just thrashing around not knowing how to handle any of this and American prestige and power has suffered accordingly. I mean, I don't get it. It's too complicated. Well, it's. I mean, I think your description is exactly right. I think the Biden administration is totally at sea, just, just missing huge uh, shifting of, of tectonic plates geopolitically around the world. I think it's largely driven by China, but there are certainly the outriders like Iran and North Korea, like Brazil. I mean, China's uh, activity kind of across the board uh, is just something we're not dealing with. I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I think, I think the Biden administration came in obsessed with the idea of negotiating international agreements on climate change, which meant it didn't want to press China too hard. It didn't want to press Russia too hard. Uh, and, and we're seeing some of the results. But I think it's also just because because they've got this vacuous idea that that if uh, democracies simply stick together, that, that they'll be safe. And the Chinese and the Russians have shown they don't buy that argument. You may recall we had a uh, uh, an interesting negotiation at the G7 meeting in Canada in 2018 when the Canadians and the French wanted to talk about a rules-based international order. Yep. Uh, and apparently Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and, and a bunch of others never got that memo. So, you, you know, the Biden administration can talk about it all they want. We're we're slipping behind our influence, our prestige are declining day by day, which which is why I thought we needed to get a discussion going about a new grand strategy. You know, just go back to that Canadian thing. That's exactly right. So we had all these negotiations uh, with, the you know, the various heads of state uh, and Trump and so forth. But we insisted with this rules-based order idea that if a rules-based order didn't come about, that the United States would be free to take action. You remember how we had to fight for wording on that stuff? Well, exactly to give us the flexibility. Right. And, and uh, but the people we were arguing with actually believed it existed, and that's what the problem is. Well, so now uh, talk a little bit about China, Russia, because it, you know it looks like that. 
axis is moving, not only moving closer together, but gaining more power. And I hate to use the phrase, but actually more currency, too. That's kind of a separate uh, issue with the dollar. But the fact is they're gaining more power. They're getting closer than anybody thought they'd ever get. Well, I think I think that's uh, that's right, and it's uh, it's like the Sino-Soviet alliance of the Cold War, except the positions of the two are completely reversed. China is not just the dominant power here; it, it, it's it's almost uh, like Russia has become a satellite, still a pretty powerful satellite in the nuclear field and the oil and gas field, and uh, throwing its weight around, even if uh, unsuccessfully to an extent. In Ukraine, but it's still in the Middle East. It's still causing trouble there, causing trouble around the world with South Africa and and Brazil. So the the meeting in Moscow just a few weeks ago between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin was a real marker for people paying attention that these people are on the move and we're we're just standing around watching the world go by. Mm. So you say in this article, um, after Ukraine wins its war with Russia, we must aim to split the Russia-China axis. Moscow's defeat could unseat Mr. Putin's regime. Now, first of all, you believe Ukraine can win? Well, I think they can. I think uh, the Biden administration has not developed a strategy. I think you've seen one argument after another about this weapon system, that weapon system. Uh, the, the Russians have, have thrown in enormous resources, human and material. They're not doing very well. Uh, uh, and, and look, this is a huge benefit to us. Defense Secretary Austin said eight or ten months ago, what the Russians are doing is feeding their army into a wood chipper. Mm. And uh, mm. under this latest intelligence leak everybody's been reading about, apparently their special operations forces, forces have been particularly depleted. So the Russians are exhausting their military power, their conventional power. We are getting battlefield testing of our weapon systems, and they're proving to be quite effective. Uh, and and this, is, this is the sort of thing that I think at this point I don't see any way out other than uh, continuing the war for some period of time. I don't see Zelensky and the Ukrainians negotiating. I certainly don't see Putin negotiating. But I think we need to bring this war to a successful conclusion from our point of view, which is proof that unprovoked aggression by Russia or China is not going to succeed. And if we can get to that point, I think it's very important to, to split Russia and China, given all of the natural resources Russia has. If they fell under effective Chinese control, whether outright annexation of much of Russian Asia or just hegemony over, just control over, uh, to put all that potential wealth in the hands of the people running Beijing would be a huge setback for the United States and our allies. Mm. Um, just on that uh, subject of this Intel leak, what else, uh, what else have you learned that's of significance? Well, I think there, the, 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 the cost of this to us is going to be substantial, and we don't really at this point still know the full extent of the leak. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really incredible to think about somebody who's basically a systems uh, worker, a plumber to keep the to keep the classified systems going, was able to access all this information and get it out. So there's a lot of harm done there, and uh, uh, assessing the full impact of it, we don't know. The Biden administration, the president's own reaction was, well, really, not much of significance has been released. I just think that's an incredible statement. I, I just 
it, it's another example of them being asleep at the switch. Mm. We don't. It's true we don't know the full extent of the damage, but I don't think we should underestimate it. Yeah, well, asleep at the switch is exactly right. You know, what's else is terribly interesting in your article here, uh, the idea that the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, could be expanded, kind of globalize it, invite, inviting Japan, Australia, Israel, and others committed to NATO defense spending targets and so forth. I've never seen that, and it, when I read it, it just made um, uh, eminent sense to me. Well, I think uh, it's uh, it's actually not my idea. It's Jose Maria Aznar, the former prime minister of Spain back about 20 years ago. And he uh, uh, really was trying to pitch it to the European allies. And it didn't get much traction then because they were still in the holiday from history. You know, when <laughs> the Cold War against the Soviet Union ended, people talked about the end of history and the peace dividend that was going to come. I think I think we're past that now. But, uh, you know, NATO is... Uh, is is far from a perfect alliance. I'd be the first to say that. But its capabilities are enormous. And to bring in other countries in Asia and, and around the world, I think, would be a real plus. A lot of work to do there. But it goes with the pattern of, of from our point of view, having the right allies, having good allies, is a force multiplier for the United States. Mm. We, we desperately need it in the Indo-Pacific, where we have what academics like to call hub and spoke alliances, a bilateral with Japan, a bilateral with Australia, with South Korea. We don't have the kind of broader alliance that NATO represents. So there are a lot of possibilities there, a lot of things in the work. But uh, given the threat China poses, this is is really urgent. And again, the Biden administration has gotten a few things right, but not at a strategic level and not in a concerted way. John Bolton, would India be a part of that? I mean, India is flirting with China a lot. Sometimes they're not. They don't like them. Sometimes they do. They're part of the quad. And it doesn't sound like they are part of the quad. Would, in, you know, India is a democracy. I mean, is India going to stick with the United States and the other democracies? Well, this is the huge question for the next several decades. I, I think Given the size of India, its population at, at some point may already actually have uh, exceeded China for the first time in recent memory uh, and likely to grow while China's population is likely to decline over the next several decades. Huge economic potential really uh, buried under loads of regulation and taxation and very complex government authority. But if we could convince the, the Indians that, uh, that being with us, being with the West as a whole really uh, was the, the way ahead. It would be of enormous benefit. We've got to break them away from their Cold War, really historical reliance on the Russians for critical, uh, sophisticated weapon systems. And I think a pretty good argument is, you know, your your friends, the Russians, are selling exactly those same systems mm-hmm. to the Chinese, mm-hmm. who are your principal adversary along that land border in the Himalayas and, and beyond that. So there's a lot of work to do here, but I would say to the government of India, you know, in the words of the famous saying, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. They've <laughs> got to make a choice. They've, yes. they've got to come out one way or the other. We need them to come out our way. Well, I thought Modi had pretty good relations uh, in the Trump with the Trump administration, but now it just doesn't read very well. That's why I asked the question. It just seems like they're no, I think moving right. away. We have not had uh, uh, an ambassador in India during the entire course of, of the administration. One's on the way now, but 
two years went by mm-hmm. uh, without an ambassador. And, and by the way, that's true in a lot of other countries like Italy, if you can imagine that. Huh. Uh, so this, this administration that touts its diplomatic ability and how well it gets along with people does not have a good record in actually getting its people into some of these key positions. We're talking to John Bolton, former U.S. National Security Advisor, former ambassador to the United Nations, now chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. His book is The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Uh, John, you also write that we must immediately increase defense budgets uh, to Reagan-era levels, which, as I recall, is like about 6.5% of GDP, something like that. Um, You know that's controversial with the Republican House, and you also know, because you and I have been pals all these many years, that we're going to have to have supply-side growth in order to provide the resources for the defense budget. You know that. A hundred percent, and and that's why I I say in the piece, and I I hope I got this right. Tell me if I did. (laughs) We need to cut cut massively our – Domestic spending. Yes. And yes. what I'm proposing, obviously, is is a big increase in defense, which means even bigger cuts in domestic spending. I think much of it is wasted. I think it's simply income transfer policies do not encourage growth. But we need with that the kind of tax cut and regulatory reduction that can stimulate the economy. There's no question that if we don't have a strong economy domestically, we cannot have a strong American foreign policy. And I would say the reverse is true. If we don't have a strong presence in the world, we're not going to be able to maintain the kind of economic growth we need at home. The Biden administration has got both ends of that equation wrong. Mm. So the way the way to, to, to be able to sustain the growth in the defense budget we need without any doubt, is significant increases in our, our rate of, uh, of economic growth. Well, I'll end on that. Uh, I'll just quote, higher levels of economic growth freed from crushing tax and regulatory burdens will underlie the necessary military buildup. This is Bolton at NSC and Kudlow at NEC. It's a good combination. I was going to say, I was quoting Larry <laughs> Kudlow there. <laughs> it's a good combination. John, it's a great piece, very thoughtful, and um, thanks ever so much for coming on. Folks, we'll take a Always quick Always glad to do it. You betcha. We'll take a quick break. We're going to bring in Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute and talk about this crazy EPA EV story. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. It's The Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Mark Mills. We're going to talk some more about this uh, EPA EV business ending the internal combustion engine when nobody voted on that and probably destroying the fossil fuel industry. Mark Mills, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, is the author of The Cloud Revolution, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. He's also the host of the last Optimist pod, podcast. Mark, welcome back. Uh, we're going to talk some, then we're going to take a break, and then we'll spill over after the break for a few more minutes, um, if that's okay with you. So, listen, I, I was surprised last night that it sort of sounded like, um, you know, this um, – this tailpipe emissions business that's going to destroy the car business and fossil fuels will succeed in bringing down uh, carbon emissions? Because you always talked about, you know, the drudging up of wind farms and how damaging that is and 
the mineral digs to make the batteries and uh you sounded a little softer on this story so i wanted to circle back and get the real mark mills <laughs> i'm not, not soft at all though the the magnitude of materials that have to be dug up and processed to make a single electric car is astonishing to most people the mm-hmm. fuel tank and a regular car has about 80 pounds of gasoline the electric car battery weighs a thousand pounds you have to dig up a half a million pounds of materials and rocks to make that one battery all that leads to emissions so evs aren't zero emissions they are elsewhere emissions yes right and those emissions can be significant enough not only to offset most of the tailpipe savings from not having a tailpipe but can actually eliminate all of the savings and in many cases you'll end up with more carbon dioxide mm-hmm. emissions than just driving a regular car in many parts of the world so it's a a really bad trade um, from an emissions perspective bad trade geopolitically because instead of domestic fuels it's essentially all imported all the energy minerals are essentially sourced globally and we have no prospect with current environmental regulations of changing that in the next decade so right. it's a bad trade it's a really bad trade that's what I, that's what i thought do you ha- you wrote a piece on this a while back yeah i've written about it a lot but it's, it's can you <laughs> say, can you email me the most recent one on the, sure. with all these facts and figures because it's very important and I, I've got some of your older stuff anyway. Please email me the. Uh, I you, will. You have the email. Um, let me uh, let me go back. I mean, this business about if, if people want, I'm not against electric vehicles. Let me just say, no, that. I, actually, I, I love them. Actually, okay. I think they're great. It's a great. Finally, we have an electric vehicle that works. It's a. It's a Elon Musk deserves credit for shaking up the entire auto industry, making them produce a new model of car, right? It's a really quite remarkable. I just want people to buy it because they like it. I exactly. don't want the government to force them to buy it exactly. by abolishing uh, internal combustion engine gas-powered cars. You follow the logic? Nobody. Well, vote. What Steve Miller said on the show last night, uh, nobody voted in Congress, Senate or House, to end uh, the internal combustion engine. Like no, nobody actually, voted on that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a brilliant workaround. I'm being br- uh, facetiously saying yeah. brilliant yeah. on the part of the administration. So unlike a state or city or some countries that just banned internal combustion engines, can't do that here. Won't happen. This Congress is not going to do that. So you have EPA passed emissions rules that you know they have the legal authority ostensibly to do that, but the consequence of it is a de facto ban on internal combustion engines. Mm. But the I agree with you. Look, there's a lot of, uh, you know, America's full of a lot of wealthy people. We have uh, most homes have two cars these days, the majority. A lot of homes have three cars. Almost all EV buyers are multi-car mm. owner homes. Mm. And wealthy people buy all cars for all kinds of reasons. Let them buy EVs. There could be a lot of fun, very useful in many places. But they can't replace the internal combustion engine globally or the United States. It's all not right. going to happen. All right. We're, we're going to give you the weekend off, okay? But you got to send me that stuff, Mark Mills. Will you send me your latest? I appreciate it very much. All right, folks. We heard it from the main source. Very important. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And the other side of the break, we're going to talk to John Carney of Breitbart Business. What is the Federal Reserve going to do? Boom, I'm Kudlow. Stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. 
I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we're going to bring in my pal John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the must-read Breitbart Business Digest. Uh, howdy, John. Thanks for coming on, as always. Good morning, Larry. So I want to uh, I want to talk about, for a moment, uh, Federal Reserve Board Governor uh, Chris Waller, Christian Waller, who I think is become has become the smartest guy in the room on that board. That may not be saying much, but it, he's a smart guy. He was uh, Jim Bullard's research director at the St. Louis Federal Reserve uh, and taught economics at Notre Dame. So it can't be all bad, right? And I just want to tell you a story. I, I'm very proud of Waller for being such a straight shooter and becoming such an intellectual force. Um, we had to, we the Trump administration toward the end had two openings on the Federal Reserve Board, and the president uh, asked me to find people and uh, put them up. And the two people were Chris Waller and Judy Shelton that I identified, and the president. Uh, Signed off on it. I couldn't get Judy through the Senate, but I did get Chris Waller through the Senate. But here's the funny part. Um, Jim Bullard, whom I know, uh, called me. Um, he said, I hear you're looking. And I said, yeah. And I said, well, I've got this guy, Chris Waller. You, you need to bring him in, interview him, and see if you like him, because I think you will. So that's how it started. It went from Bullard to me to Trump back to me. To Waller, and he actually got in right near the end, as I recall. He was finally confirmed by the Senate. I couldn't get Judy Sheldon through, uh, but nonetheless, I got Chris through. Now, that's it. that's incredible, Larry, because one of the greatest things about having Waller there is this: is he has such a deep background yes. in the re- economic research of the Federal Reserve that you really can't afford not to listen to him. And I think that also probably will have a really good effect on the rest of the people on the FOMC because they know he knows what he's talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. He will have a major uh, influence. And, you know, he's not a screamer. He's a quiet guy. He's a circumspect guy. He's a thoughtful guy. Now, he is basically steering markets to a rate hike uh, in May, a couple weeks, I guess another quarter point, and want to know what you thought about that. Yeah, so I think he's actually made a couple very good points. One is that inflation came down. We we had a pretty good month in the in the March numbers, but it is but you know one month doesn't equal a trend. That and even the coming down of in inflation really was just a you know a few items coming down, and the underlying trend still seems to be running pretty strong. And there's a risk that we don't keep going down but settle in at a high level. Mm. The other thing I thought that was very important that he said just on Friday was that we, even though everybody said, okay, Silicon Valley bank melted down, this is going to cause a, you know, credit to tighten a lot and there'll be less lending. And so therefore the Fed may not need to hike. He's pointed out that we don't see that yet. Mm. At least in the data that the Fed has so far, uh, we will, and pretty much the data that the Fed will have at the next meeting in early May, we're, we're not, we haven't seen any of the tightening. There will be in May uh, the senior loan officer survey, but that is, we don't know exactly when that comes out, but it's almost certainly coming out after the next Fed meeting. Hmm. 
And so therefore, the Fed is looking at this can't count on there being, uh, you know, a big break in bank lending if we're not seeing it anywhere else. And so that's what Waller was saying is, look, it's not in any of the data we're seeing so far, so we can't count on that to happen. So the May hike is on the way. Yeah. So at least one more, maybe two more. And and then speculate for me, John Carney, I mean, it, whatever, wherever it lands, uh, five, five and a quarter, whatever, um, they're going to keep it at a at that level for quite some time because inflation looks to be very sticky. I mean, you're kind of hovering around a 5% inflation rate. Uh, fortunately, that's not a 9% inflation rate. But if you look at all the measures, you know, headline, core, PCE, CPI, um, I mean, even uh, the median CPI at the Cleveland Fed is higher. But the point is it's sticky, and now energy prices is going back up. I think that's right. I don't think the Fed can look at any of the numbers we've had this year um, and say, oh, well, we, we see that we are on a track back to 2%. We're not. We're on a track of, of yes, we came down a lot. We're not at 9%. But we are right now, it looks like we could be stuck at 5 mm. You know, Maybe if we got lucky, 4%. That's twice what the Fed is aiming for. And I think the Fed is one of the things the Fed is desperately trying to convince the market is that they're serious about getting to 2%. A lot of people have begun to talk of, well, maybe, you know, maybe 3% is good enough. Mm. I think that is, uh, I think the Fed is very loath to change. This is the first time since central banks around the world settled on a 2% inflation rate as the correct rate. First time it's ever seriously been challenged. And if they give up on it, after the very first bout of inflation and say, actually, you know what? It was really 3%. I think that creates a deep credibility problem for our Federal Reserve, for central banks around the world. I don't think the ECB wants to go to 3%. I think they want to stick to 2%. Mm. So it would create a clash between uh, central banks. And frankly, I, I, I think that lose its ability the next time 3% is challenged, right, the next time we get inflation, who's to say they don't go to 4 The market will start to build in mm. this idea that the Fed is not serious about the target. Who was, uh, John, was it Bernanke who negotiated the 2% or was it Greenspan? I can't recall. Well, so it, it didn't become formal until under Bernanke, but Greenspan probably had 2% as, you know, because remember, the Fed didn't used to tell us very much at all about what they were really doing. This idea of like, you know, oh, well, we definitely have a 2% target was actually pretty new at the time it came out. Mm. And then, uh, you know, and, they, and now they've gotten even more explicit where, you know, under Powell, they came to, well, we're it's not just a 2% target, it's an average of 2% over time. Now they're probably abandoning that, you know, idea. Uh, but they are, but they used to, I mean, way back in the day, they didn't even tell us what rate they were targeting. I know. I like that. I <laughs> I think if I, I'm not convinced that someday we may look at this period of having a very open monetary policy as a possible mistake. Because, yeah. look, it, it didn't work when they for for, you know, close to a decade. They were or over a decade, rather. They were below 2% all the time, so they couldn't hit the target, and they were hitting on the downside. And now they can't hit the target, and they're on the upside. 
So there's not a lot of evidence to me that, you know, the communication strategy of letting everybody know exactly what the target was, was the right way to go. I mean, Volcker used to go up to the hill and he wouldn't tell him anything, which I thought was great. He wouldn't tell him anything. I mean, <laughs> I, when I started, I worked at the New York Fed 1973, 1974, 1975. I worked in open market operations for a year. I worked in bank supervision for a year, blah, blah, blah. Paul Volcker was the president of the New York Fed then. Al Hayes, the first year that he retired, then Paul came in. It was before he became chairman. But Arthur Burns was the chairman. Uh, I mean, I think at one point they had money supply targets. Uh, but when Volcker took over, he didn't want to tell anybody anything. He just, remember, he'd, he just puff on his cigars and give generalizations, and basically he would say more about fiscal policy. He would tell him to cut the budget deficit. Well, he wouldn't Reagan tell him much. actually. The Reagan administration actually complained that the because Volcker wouldn't yes explicitly say that what the monetary quantity policy was yes and the and and the quantity would jump up and down. And Volcker would basically say, well, you're just going to have to deal with it. We're adopting the appropriate monetary strategy. <laughs> and that's really all they would say. Right? Uh, this is the I appropriate know. monetary policy. I, I was at OMB in those days. That's exactly right. And he, James Baker and some of the big shots uh, in the Oval Office really did not like Volcker. All he did, gee whiz, heck, was bring inflation down from 15 to 2. That's all Volcker did without, without telling anybody how he intended to do it. The great part of the story is he did it. Uh, John, the last minute and a half or so, uh, you've been writing that the Federal Reserve Board staff is forecasting recession. That's right. And what happened was that the, we, we predicted this. We've talked about it on this radio show before that when the Fed came out with its projections, about where they saw GDP going this year, it was 0.4%. It was down from 0.5%, which was a pretty low growth number for a whole year, fourth quarter to fourth quarter. And my point was, if you look at that number, you see there's got to be a recession built in there. You can't get to 4% from 2% without having a couple negative quarters. So how did, so what, what we learned this week was that when they released the Fed minutes, we saw that the Fed staff presented the, you know, their economic forecast. And what they told all the officials was, look, we used to think that there was a possible alternative version of the economy where we were going to have a recession. Now that's the baseline. So we think, you know, the Fed staff thinks recession second half of this year, uh, probably lasting into next year. Mm. That's the other interesting thing that I think people have not quite come to grips with, which is that there's no quick bounce back. The economy doesn't get back to the even 1.8%, which is the Fed's weird long run, you, you and I agree, too, too low target for growth. Yep. Uh, they don't think we get back there until 2025. Mm. That's going to be trouble politically for the Biden administration, yeah. frankly. If we're growing at 1% in a election year, uh, that, that won't feel very good to most Americans. You're right about the Biden problem, but I'll tell you, it's, it's just not good for the country. The country is not, I was talking to Steve Forbes about this earlier, John. Uh, the country is not a happy place. A lot of that is because we don't have any real prosperity. Uh, you know, we're stuck now somewhere between inflation and recession or both. Um, it's just not in a good place. Uh, and there needs to, needs to be a change in Washington, but you know, most importantly, the country is not in a good place. That's what always, uh, worries me. Anyway, 
Uh, John Carney at Breitbart, i got to move on. Uh, thanks for your time on a Saturday. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to bring in pollster John McLaughlin, who's um, he's got some pretty good news for Donald Trump. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We bring in my great friend John McLaughlin, pollster, strategic consultant. He's the CEO of McLaughlin and Associates. John, thanks for coming on. I saw a Newsmax article, Brother Jim, saying that former President Trump has a very wide lead in the GOP primary over undeclared candidate Governor Ron DeSantis. Can can you confirm this, John McLaughlin? <laughs> yes, it's, yes, it's true. As full disclosure, we, Jim and I work for President Trump, as you know, and we've always worked for him. And uh, uh, the Alvin, the, the Biden Bragg radical left indictment of Donald Trump backfired. Hmm. The campaign had us. We 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 published the monthly poll that we put on our website March 21st, and and Trump was ahead in that poll and has been going ahead since January. But the Trump campaign had us do a, a flash, you know, a, an emergency uh, brush fire poll right after the indictment. And April 1st, we had the numbers where uh, uh, we literally did it. Where we had it one day where Trump in the Republican field had gone from January 5240 uh, over DeSantis to 6330. Hmm. And in the multi-candidate field, he he was leading in, in uh, January 4331, Pence at five. And uh, uh, right after the indictment, it went to 5121. And Pence was at six and Haley four and Mitt Romney to everybody else left. So the Republicans have coalesced. But the one thing I've said to, to President Trump is the real crime you committed is that you've been beating uh, Joe Biden in the polls for over a year. And this in this poll, he was leading nationally among all likely voters across the country. He was leading Joe Biden 47-43. Since then, a whole series of other polls have come out and and reflected what our poll showed, where the real clear politics average of media polls that usually don't favor us uh, have mm. Trump ahead 44 to 42 over Biden. Mm. So it, it would be a Trump landslide. Because remember, Larry, in 16 and 20, when we were working together, Trump was never ahead in the national popular vote. It's on our website on McLaughlinOnline.com. We were losing the national popular vote. Mm. Now we're winning the national popular vote. We were always competitive in the battleground states. But the country, because the number one issue is the economy. Half the voters are telling us it's the economy. And the number one thing is inflation, which you and Steve Forbes were talking about. Uh, Steve's got a great book. You've got great policies. We've got to get uh, the, the, country, the economy growing again and inflation under control. And that's what Donald Trump did. Well, and that's the best contrast he has against Biden. Let me uh, I want to insert this because there's this view, John McLaughlin, the view that uh, the indictments or indictment or indictments, they help him, uh, Donald Trump, in the primary race, but they hurt him. In the general election race. Now, it's interesting. There was a, this was the subject of a piece in the New York Sun by a reporter. But I went back and looked at a whole bunch of polls, real clear politics, that did not confirm that. That, in fact, Trump's improvement in the primary is accompanied by his improvement with Biden. Now, it's close. I mean, he's ahead of Biden in these polls and including, I think, your poll by just a couple of points. But there's no evidence 
that his rise in the primaries means he's going to crash against Biden or that, you know, like Karl Rove's of the world are saying Trump is the easiest guy for Biden to beat. There's really no polling evidence of that. No, no. And your piece in the sun was dead on. And that that ABC poll that that people have talked about with yeah. only 566 adults mm. on an Ipsos panel. And then they asked if there's just second question in the poll was if you were aware Donald Trump paid hush money uh, to a to an adult porn star. And that seems to be the media mantra in the bias polls. They throw that in first where they're aware of it or think it's serious. Then they start asking questions and they bias it because but the, the, what they're missing is in the Trump poll that we published. Uh, when we ask people if the if Biden uh, and the radical left have weaponized the justice system system among all voters, 48 to 39, they agreed with that. That's all voters. Republicans mm-hmm. agreed 82 to 11. Mm. And and are the Democrats spending too much time resources going after Donald Trump with phony political attacks and a waste and wasting tax dollars instead of taking on real issues, economy, inflation, crime, immigration, national security? They agree 57 to 35 republicans agree 88 to 8 people have people are suffering the economy th- th- this inflation is a hidden tax mm-hmm. we get people you know working class people who love donald trump now and are the mainstay of the republican party tell us they have to decide whether to buy gas or food mm-hmm. and when they go to fam- young families going to a supermarket they're paying 400 dollars what used to be 200 dollars a trip and so there's this hidden tax and Biden's getting worse. I mean, they're telling us we can't have gas stoves. Mm. We're going to have to have electric cars that nobody can afford. I mean, no average person. Anyway. We, we haven't voted. No one voted yeah. on ending the internal combustion engine. <laughs> right. But John McLaughlin, the point, the really important thing here is that, look, all these candidates have to talk about uh, the economy, prosperity, growth, inflation. Regulations, taxes. In other words, um, I wrote this column. There's a good big piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Republicans, I, you have. To, there are social issues that have to be discussed. But if the GOP mm-hmm. is going to win, their biggest trump card, if you will, is limited government and economic growth and prosperity. They've got to have economic messages, John. Absolutely, you and I. By the way, they're having a big debate now because of entitlements again. Here we go, the Republicans saying we're going to have to cut benefits to Social Security. Just Medicare. grow the economy, for Christ's sake. Exactly. Just grow I, I the economy. For you. I, mean, I mean, we make the Trump tax cuts permanent, get yep. rid of the regulations, let yep. the economy grow, the money will be there. It's the only way you can do it. You know, Kevin Hassett, a very smart guy, all right, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Kevin said, uh, just repealing the new regulations put in place by Biden, just repealing the new regulations would increase the economic growth rate, John, by 1% per year. That's how Mm -hmm. onerous they are. Now, Trump came out with a good deregulation thing. Uh, I haven't read it carefully, but I scanned it. It looked very good. Um, DeSantis is attacking the Fed. I like that a lot. In other words, the GOP's bread and butter is going to be the economic message. That's the point. I'm not saying social issues don't matter, but I'm saying if they want to win, it's got to be an economic message. Absolutely. It's the foundation. Because because when 85% of all voters tell us 
that they've been negatively impacted by inflation. 42% tell us that they're having trouble making ends meet. Mm-hmm. You have to grow the economy. It's, you have to put a lid on inflation, grow the economy. And then, you know, when it, when you're talking about, like we have the, we work for the Job Creators Network, small businesses, they want the t- tax cuts permanent. They have a, uh, they want to get rid of these regulations. They're getting, they're getting killed right now by all these regulations that Biden's putting on businesses. So you're absolutely right. And why you're is, have to look forward. Let me just switch gears a second. We're running out of time. Why are they booing Mike Pence at the NRA thing? What's, what's Pence? I mean, Pence is behind. Uh, you know, I don't think he's going to get the nomination. But he's a good man. He's a personal friend of mine. He's a yeah. solid, why are they booing him? What did he do? Uh, well, I, I think <laughs> I wasn't there, but he's a senator. And you're right. Mike Pence is a longtime friend. I pulled from him when he first ran yeah. for Congress. And he's, we worked together when he was, he was a very good vice president. But he's running against Donald Trump right now. Right. And the Republicans on the right All have right. unified around Trump. John McLaughlin, thank you, buddy. Donald Trump, very much in the game, but the economic issues are going to be crucial. I'm Cudlow, folks. Stick around. little break and the other side of the break. We're going to do some stock market work. How about that? It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, uh, join us during the week. Fox Business Network, name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if by some chance you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And by the by, you can listen to this uh, radio show on the Internet, live streaming, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. So let's do some stock market work. We've got Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President at Morgan Stanley, and Mike Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money. Gentlemen, welcome. Mike, uh, Yankees are losing to uh, Minnesota. What's up with that? Minnesota's good, and the Yankees haven't figured out how to get Carrera out for two years. So uh, <laughs> I think every time he plays the Yankees, he hits a home run, drives in at least three runs. So uh, maybe we'll figure that out this afternoon. I think, Larry, this is kind of like, you know, uh, with the Yankees, it's sort of the same thing we're, we're doing uh, in politics. We're, we're waiting for the cavalry to arrive. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll get, our starting, get some of our starting pitchers back. And uh, hopefully improve from there. All right. Well, you're the expert. Uh, I'm be optimistic. Jim LeCamp, top uh, uh, top story in the Wall Street Journal this morning above the fold is a big rally in big bank stocks. Big mm-hmm. bank stocks. J.P. Morgan and Citi and Wells Fargo. So I'm looking. Let's see. The KBW Bank Index was up 3.2% last week. JPM up 8.8, Citigroup up 8.1, Bank of America 6, Wells Fargo 4.6, Goldman Sachs 4.5. Big earnings, huge profits, as I understand it, and also big infusions of deposits. So what's going on there, Jim LeCamp, and does this last? 
Well, there's a couple of things going on with the big banks that are um, – when we had the problems with – um, Silicon Valley Bank and and the others, uh, you saw a deposit flow out of small banks and regional banks into the bigger banks. I work for uh, one of them, so I've seen it uh, anecdotally, but I've also seen the money flows uh, across the country. Now, that's stabilized, and the reality is we still have an inverted yield curve. And when you look at the XLF, uh, the, the financial index, the, the ETF, yeah, you've popped up here over the last couple of weeks, but look at it in a longer picture and look at the market on a longer picture. We haven't gone anywhere. We haven't gone anywhere in a year, um, for uh, really two years for the market. We're kind of right back where we were. And that's because we're getting this tug of war at the Fed. You know, they added $755 billion in liquidity in the first quarter. So it's no wonder you saw the stock market go up in the first quarter. That's going to ease a little bit now that the banking crisis is starting to abate and ameliorate a little bit. And now you've got these all, all these earnings we're going to have to fight through. In the meantime, all the economic data, no matter what box you want to check, whether it's leading indicators, factory output, now retail sales, CapEx plans, and the inverted yield curve, check every box. We're heading to a recession, and so we're going to have issues. And with these banks, in answer to your question, with the yield curve still inverted, uh, they're going to be okay, but I don't know that they're going to be a great place to allocate risk dollars. Michael Zane, you buying gold? Gold is hot. Gold. gold is hot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The instability of the dollar has been incredible. Uh, you know, Jim touched on the what the Fed's been doing. Uh, you know, it's the, the best way to put it, I guess, the changes in the money supply mm. have so drastically changed uh, and, and gone from massive increases to negative year-over-year changes uh, and I think the all of that's caused instability in the dollar has big up and down swings. It's down lately. And I think that's one of the reasons why gold is up. Uh, you know, Jim touched on, you know, the Fed. I, you know, there's everything the last couple of months has been, do we bet on the Fed easing or, or you know, in a couple of months? When are they going to stop hiking? And all of that's created a lot of instability in the dollar, which in my view – is the exact opposite of what the Fed should be aiming for. You know, uh, they, there was a great op-ed two days ago about how the great economist Robert Mundell was right mm-hmm. and looking for a stable currency. That was spot on. We've seen some others come out. Of course, my boss, Steve Forbes, has talked about tying it to commodities and to gold forever. Uh, the great Art Laffer has come out recently and talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I, I think that's that's the big thing. And as it affects banks, you know, uh, I think, in my opinion, everything Jim said is absolutely correct. I would just add to that by saying, you know, even J.P. Morgan warned about its net interest income will come under pressure in coming quarters. And I think there's going to be a divergence. You know, the big banks have a lot more levers to pull than the smaller banks. And I think there's going to be a divergence between the two, a bifurcation. But Wall Street, you know, you know, you started this the show by talking about how the profits and stock prices did good. But if you actually looked at how some of the big banks are valued right now, it's not with a lot of optimistic. Bank of America is trading below book value. Mm. J.P. Morgan is trading at a price to book of 1.4. 
Uh, not a lot of optimism or, shall I say, you know, confidence in those valuations. It's interesting. Um, year to date, uh, Bank of America is down 11%, and Wells Fargo's down 4 Goldman down 2 uh, JPM is up 3.5%, and Citigroup is up almost 10%. So it's kind of a mixed bag. I don't, I don't have Morgan Stanley, sorry, Jim. But um, in any event, I just w- thinking, I had this thought. Uh, we've had a lot of issues. We've had a year ago, we had two negative quarters, a lot of recession forecasts right now, uh, including the Federal Reserve Board staff. Uh, we've also had very high inflation. It's come off, but it's still sticking at around, I don't know, 4 or 5 or 6%. But, Jim LeCamp, the stock markets, if you look at all this, I mean, they're down, but they're not down that much. I mean, the Dow's at almost 34,000, the S&P's 4,100. That's not bad considering all the turbulence we've had in the economy. It's just interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's the biggest surprise of this year is that the the S&P 500 is actually up what it is on the year with all the indicators pointing towards recession. Uh, And it's been a very narrow set of leadership uh and and it's a really an odd set of leadership what you what you've had happen larry is last year the theme was raising rates so what happens you beat up all the nasdaq names that benefited from a 40-year drop in interest rates and now this year the narrative early in the year first quarter was that the fed was going to pivot and so a lot of those beaten down but but like names whether it's Apple, NVIDIA, names like that, Tesla, uh, all, all got a bid again. But here's the thing. Uh, the Fed was uh, injecting liquidity into the market, and um, it was very narrow in leadership. And the valuations of the market, uh, they're not compelling. In fact, when I look at what you can get on the sidelines in treasuries, in short treasuries, and I look at the equity risk premium, it's not very much. And what you want to do when you take risk is have an asymmetric trade. You want more upside than downside. At 17 and a half times earnings, you, I would argue you don't have more upside than downside. You have a, it's fairly equal. Uh, you know, with, with the top of the range probably being 21, 22 times earnings and the low end of the range being 13, 14 times earnings. But now you're heading into a recession without an asymmetric trade in front of you. So I think investors still need to be very, very careful in here. You've also benefited from the seasonals. You know, the third year of the presidential cycle is usually strong, especially in the first quarter. So that's really helped the market as well. But I think this summer we're up for some uh, rapids and some rough sledding. You know, you look at um, one other measure here. You talk about the equity risk premium. So investment grade, Moody's BAA index is 5.5%. That's a good yield. Five and a half percent. I mean, the ten-year note is three and a half. Interest rates went up twenty some odd basis points this past week, uh, even while stocks went up. But the Moody's BAA, I mean, corporate bonds, uh, good investment. Some of those indexes, anyway. I'm saying this is five and a half percent. The other one, Michael Zanian, I I love this. Um, let's see, the biggest percentage gain this week. And make sure I'm right. I have all these. Yep. Bitcoin, 8.9%. <laughs> uh, 
It is now trading at 30,461. You buy in Bitcoin, you could barbell Bitcoin and gold. How about that? Well, you know, barbell? I, I, I stick huh. with gold. They, although you're, you're right to point out, of course, that they seem to, the last couple of years, moved in tandem. I fully do not understand Bitcoin. I will <laughs> admit that right out front. I do understand gold. Uh, so I, I would I would tend to go more with gold. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, the interesting thing, you know, uh, Jim was explaining a lot of what, what's been happening with the stock market, you know, doing fairly well. I, I think perhaps part of that also has been the fact that earnings have held up fairly well. Yep. And one of the reasons why earnings have held up well is margins are down a little bit, profit margins. They're off their peak, but they've ha- held up fairly well. And I think that companies now are are looking at their margins and they're saying, you know what? I think I know a lot of companies now, they're talking about layoffs, trimming the labor force. One of the things that's buttressed everything is that despite all the bad economic news, the unemployment rate has been very good in mm-hmm. and of itself. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think the job market has peaked maybe late last year. Mm. And I think that when you tie that into what we're seeing now with retail sales, a very disappointing number, mm. I, I think that. Uh, I absolutely agree with Jim. I think that that spells uh, a very tough summer for equities. All right, let's take a break. We're talking to Jim LeCamp, Senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley, and we're talking to Mike Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media and co-host of the Forbes Sports Money Show on the Yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with stocks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley and Michael Zanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media, co-host of Forbes Sports Money Show on the Yes Network. A very good show indeed. Um, Michael Zanian, is there an energy play here? Oh, you know, um, oil, yeah. I'm just looking... West Texas is now 82 and a half. Brent crude is 86 and a half. Obviously, since the Saudi OPEC plus announcement, oil prices have gone up. Uh, gasoline prices have gone up. Uh, what do you make of it? Supply demand curve is definitely out of balance, Larry. I think you're, you're spot on. The way I would play that is kind of like the gold rush back in the 1800s in California. Instead of looking for the gold, or maybe the pure oil plays. I'd go with the guy selling the shovels and picks for the gold miners. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I like Halliburton a lot, you uh-huh. know, which helps the oil companies explore. Uh, I, I think they're a very well run company. I think that's a great way to play because despite all the, the big, shall we say, government push to get us out of fossil fuels mm-hmm. and so forth, uh, the fact of the matter is this economy cannot run without it. And uh, the supply-demand imbalance is going to push for a greater need of more oil. And I, and I think Halliburton is a, is a good play in that. Jim LeCamp, you're down there in Texas. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of oil in Texas, I, I hear told. Um, <laughs> what's your take on this story? First of all, are the oil producers producing more oil right now? It's kind of uh, flat, flattened a little bit. Um, for about the last year, you did see an increase in the rig count and in production. Mm. 
and now that that slope has really flattened out. It's still positive, but it's not real positive. Uh, producers have been very disciplined. Uh, used to be the cure for high oil prices was high oil prices. Mm-hmm. You just see uh, bigger and bigger uh, production, recounts, etc. You're not seeing that this time. Part of part of that is the political environment. But I'm very bullish on crude for a number of reasons. Very simply, it's supply and demand. But even broader than that, Larry, if you look at the dollar, the the dollar's been weakening. There's an attack on the dollar uh, spearheaded by China. Um, they're trying to, you know, price gold in Renminbi, and they're trying to price gold and uh, price oil in, in in gold and other currencies. The IMF is coming out with a, an idea for their own currency. And if you look at the CRB index, mm-hmm. it broke out this week. It broke the trend. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not just oil that you're seeing trade high. And I do like the gold trade as well. Copper, cattle, corn, lumber, and the index itself all starting to trade back higher. So I do think there's a trade there, and you can get a nice dividend yield on a lot of these oil stocks as well. So it's A, it's a value play, uh, B, uh, it's a growth story, well, and C, you can capture a dividend out of there. So there's there's not a lot of reasons not to like it here. How is our Exxon and Chevron doing? I think they're doing great. I mean, uh, you're, uh, again, you get a very nice dividend there, and 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 oil stocks are not like uh, tech stocks. With a tech stock, what you would want to do is look for high relative strength and buy a breakout. Mm. If you do that in oil, you're going to get killed. It's too cyclical. So you wait for long bases. What do you have in Exxon right now? A long base. What do you have in Chevron right now? A long base. Uh, those those are really good entry points, and you're get again you're getting nice yields. Now, if you really want the power play, you're going to buy uh, the producers. Um, you want to buy the E and P companies that are uh, primarily located in the Permian Basin. But uh, if you want a safer play, a, a soft and steady one, I, I like Michael's play on the on the service company. I like the Jay picks. Halliburton. I like the picks and shovels. I think that's a that's yeah. a great play. Um, Mike Kozanian, the Fed is going to raise its target Fed funds rate at the next meeting by a quarter of a percentage point. Uh, I don't know if it'll be the last one. Uh, I do believe wherever the peak in the target rate is, they are not going to start chopping it down immediately, as many on Wall Street are saying. So what's your take on the Fed play? Well, I, I agree. I think that they'll have another 25 basis point uh, increase at least because <clears> – <throat> Excuse me, as you mentioned, inflation is still, I think it's 5% year over year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not going to, look, I'm not saying I agree with what the Fed has been doing. I'm just trying to read what they're going to do. And uh, I, I think if you're going to play this in equities, I, just going back to what I was saying earlier, I'm <clears throat> very hesitant to buy uh, government bonds. Uh, I still think, no matter almost what the environment is, I still think you should own some equities. Uh, and going back to my theme about margins, uh, you know, I was looking around a lot the last few days. I mean, there are some companies that have just been spectacular at managing their margins, uh, you know. So along those lines, is a company like General Mills, for example, uh, 28% return on equity. Uh, I, I think you can still, you know, go into the equity market, but I think you're going to have to pick your spots. I agree with Jim about energy. Uh, my favorite play in that area happens to be Chevron. Hmm. Um, you buy an Anheuser Busch? 
Uh, well, you know what? If it's cheap enough, I I, I might. Uh, you know, you know. I, I I guess I could be a hypocrite. I could disagree with all the wokeness. Yeah. But if that makes the stock cheap enough, I I might come in thinking they learned their lesson. They probably have anyway. Wait, are I, we talking about the product or the actual stock? We're not going to talk about what we're talking about. <laughs> Jim LeCamp, thank you very much. Mike Ozanian, thank you ever so much. We're going to move on to money and politics after the break. Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlos. Please stick around. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore. Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and Steve Moore's radio show, More Money, follows this show. More Money. Okay. So, kids, welcome back. I want to raise a couple of points that I've raised earlier in the show, but I want to give you a whack at them. (laughs) All right. So the first one, um, Liz Peek, I'm going to go to you first on this. The EPA is essentially attempting to end the internal combustion engine. That is the sole purpose, right? They are not going to solve carbon emissions with this. They're not prepared. We don't have the minerals for the batteries. We don't have the transmission line, electricity infrastructure. We don't even have people that want electric cars. But they're jamming it down our throats. Now, here's a question (laughs) my pal Steve Miller asked on the show last night. All right, we're going to get rid of the internal combustion engine, Liz Peak. Do you recall either the Senate or the House voting on this? I mean, it's a. don't you think it's a pretty big decision? No more gas-powered cars, no more internal combustion engine, no more technology going back 125 years? Yeah, I mean, it's an outrage. And this is more of Joe Biden's executive Uh, directive of the country. And I think we've seen the Supreme Court knock down these Mm. earlier efforts to single-handedly change vast industries in the United States. And this will indeed change our auto industry for better or worse forever. Uh, What's interesting, Larry, is that they were going to announce this uh, at in Detroit, I think, or in some auto show or something. And they didn't because guess what? The UAW is somewhat opposed to it. Mm. Why? because it takes about half as many workers to produce an EV as it does an internal combustion engine car, and companies that are gearing up to do that in the U.S., which they are being forced to do because the Inflation Reduction Act and the hefty subsidies in that act are moving to labor-friendly states where they don't have to have unions. Mm -hmm. So this is a smack in the face to the unions that have supported Joe Biden, It is a horrifying thing for consumers who would have to pay, on average, about $16,000 more for an EV. But also, I think something that, you know, I don't have the data to prove it. I haven't seen the modeling on this. But EPA really pushes this through. And we have this enormous conversion to electricity, not just for cars, but for cooking and everything else they want to push through. My guess is electricity rates, which went up, I think, 13% last year, are going to make fire fueling up or fueling an EV pretty competitive with gas-fired uh, combustion engines 
in a matter of three or four years. I mean, I think the cost advantage to maintaining an EV could well disappear. Yes. Yes, here's the thing. There's not much consumer choice in this, as I see it, Steve. None. <laughs> All right? So, like, um, 100 years ago or whatever, 120 years ago, uh, the U.S. government didn't ban horse and buggies. There was no bill that said no more horse and buggies. What there was was because Henry Ford started making good cars with an internal combustion engine, people get this voluntarily, without subsidies, just started buying cars because they liked them, and they got them from A to B faster than anyone ever dreamed possible, and we've been making progress on that ever since. So what we're doing now is, um, I don't know, I think it's, Central planning, it's socialism, it's command and control, but they still haven't voted on any of this stuff, and they're going to have to. Is that for me, Larry? It's for you. I served it up. I served it up as good as I can. I'm in hour three of this radio show, so I may be a little slow on the take. I was thinking when you were talking about consumer choice, the famous quote you remember from Henry Ford about the first Model T's, and and uh, he said you can get it in any color you want as long as it's black. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so that th- this really is an assault. Look, I think the Biden administration has really stepped in it here because the one thing I know about America is we have a love affair with our cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my first car was a 1974 Mustang convertible. You know, I love that car. Mm-hmm. We have a little classic uh, in our little village that we li- live in. Uh, every Sunday morning, they have the, all the classic cars that come in. People come in from miles with these incredibly mm. wonderful old Cadillacs and things like that. People love their cars. And you know what? You, you're exactly right. Nobody bothered to ask the consumer yeah. whether this is what they want. Yeah. And, you know, 6% of the new cars that are being sold are electric vehicles for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons people might not want an EV. And by the way, I'm not against EVs. Mm. If, you know, Teslas are wonderful vehicles if you want to buy one. And if you can afford to buy one, you yeah. know, they're $80,000. Here's the most amazing thing about this. So we're paying people, what is the subsidy of 70? We're giving people a check for $7,500 if they buy a Tesla. We're subsidizing by billions of dollars the building of the batteries. Have you noticed in like the, um, the parking lots at, uh, you know, if you go to a shopping mall or something, mm-hmm. all the choice parking spaces are now reserved for people with EVs. Yeah. <laughs> so, in other words, we're slanting the, the playing field totally in favor of EVs, and people still won't buy them. Right. And partly the reason they won't buy them is because they're too expensive. You know, they, even with all the subsidies, they're just too expensive for people to buy. I'll tell you one other quick story. Uh, which is one of my friends has a Tesla and they had a problem with the battery and he had to pay $25,000 to replace the battery. That amount of money, you Uh, could buh. buy a new car. Uh, so you know, it, it's also a matter of convenience, right? I mean, I think right. let, let's remember you're on a road trip and you're going across the country and let's suppose there's this charging thing is actually geared up and they've got enough stations. <laughs> It still it still takes you even with the fastest charging stations. I right. think about half an hour mm. to charge your car for another. I don't know what four hundred miles, three hundred miles, maybe less. Uh, so it's not. I mean, it's not crazy that only seven percent of U.S. vehicle sales uh, are new, are EVs. People don't think they work as well in their lives. And I got to tell you, the thing that happened in California where. All of a sudden, there's an electricity shortage because California is the model for the U.S., right. and yes, they don't have the infrastructure to support the electrification of their economy. So all of a sudden, 
you know, Newsom comes out and says, well, make sure you do it at night. Well, that's great. But what if you're in the middle of of doing your chores, you need to go and get charged up again. And, And here's the thing. Also, it's not convenient, but also literally at that point when gasoline was, I don't know, three fifty a gallon or something like that, all of a sudden in California, it costs as much to charge your EV as it did to fill up your tank. So when I'm talking about this as a national issue, I actually think this could happen. As, as I say, I haven't seen the data, but I think it's quite possible that that's where we'll end up. By the way, well, the- let me add something to this, by the way, because you, know, you touched on it, Larry, and it's an important point. Where are we going to get the electric power? Right. I mean, well, that's the as point. you said, every gadget in America is now going to be electric and not with, with you know, uh, with gas powered. So we already have an over, our grid system is already in great peril. And every car in America is now going to be charged with electricity. Yeah. Uh, this is a very dangerous situation for, and, and incidentally, do you know which state had this idea first of moving to these um, super stringent um, California, uh, California, California. Yeah. Basically, yeah. what Biden is doing is taking all the regulatory framework of California and imposing it on the nation. And this is a perfect example of that. Well, Biden's going to run on the California model, California, yeah, New job. York, Chicago. Right. That's what his basic thing is. He's going to run on that model. And DeSantis uh, and or Trump have got to run on the Florida, Texas model. Mary, can I say one other thing about this? Uh, I think I think also something that's really dispiriting to me. You're not going to hear or see lawsuits from the automakers. They are no, so I'm now scared. they're in, in on the it. Pocket. They're in on it. They, they, of course, they are because they are totally beholden to the government. Increasingly, yep. they are wards of the state. And and it just is offensive to me that not one auto executive is going to stand up and say, this is going to wreck our country. They're not making profits on making EVs. Ultimately, the taxpayer is going to subsidize the whole damn industry because I really think it's possible as they go to 100 percent EV production, no one's Mm -hmm. going to make any money. Well, by the way, something to that. Wait, hang on. The car makers are beholden to California. Yeah. I had yep. this when we negotiated uh, the um, uh, mileage. We wanted lower mileage. Yep. Uh, the car makers first wanted lower mileage, but then California said no way. Yep. California is yep. the you know by far the biggest right. state for car sales and even yep. even sure. car production. So what? A- but there's no uh, look. There's not enough cobalt for the batteries. <laughs> Okay, and they won't, they won't. The Interior Department won't give you permits uh, yeah. to mine yeah. cobalt and whatever lithium and all these things, even copper. So yeah. this is the bailout China bill, <laughs> among other things. And when you're finished digging these uh, mines, if you ever do, or if you're finished increasing electricity, however you do it, whether it's a wind farm or whatever, you're going to release a lot of carbon into the air. Yep. So what you think you're going to get on the tailpipe, you're not going to get it because not enough people are going to buy it. Right. But what you think, you're going to lose elsewhere, okay? Yep. So, I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. That's why this, but I still think the command and control aspect of this, the Biden regulators <clears throat> want to run this economy, okay? Yeah. That's what, let me look. Yeah. The car business is the fifth yeah. largest industry in America, yeah. and they're basically going to yeah. run it, aren't they, if they if this goes yeah. through? Yeah. But, Larry, I have a great idea. 
I have a really great idea. You and me and Liz should start a car company that makes cars for people left. I mean, yeah. actually, there is there is one company that's basically said, no, we're not all in on this EV. You know who it is? Toyota. It's the yeah. Japanese. Oh, that's, that's right. Interesting, I think. Yeah. Pathetic. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. the Japanese get it and not the American car yeah. companies no, get it. Well, look, Steve, what I think would be really hilarious is if Elon Musk started an internal combustion car company. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, he's a brilliant guy. He makes beautiful cars. How about making a line of regular internal combustion cars that people want to buy? He'd make a fortune. If you're going to buy an EV, at least buy a Tesla because he's for free speech. I agree. And he's a libertarian and he's sick of the White House. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Liz Peek and we're talking to Steve Moore. By the way, Steve, program comes right after this show. It's called More Money. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and More Money, his great radio show that follows this show we're talking money and politics. So, Liz, I spent some time on the TV show last night and again this morning. The op-ed in the journal by this chap from the Manhattan Institute, and I just called it, it's the economy stupid now more than ever, that a lot of Republicans make a mistake that the real populist message is not always the culture war wedge issues. The real Populist message is limited government, lower taxes, fewer services, and growth and prosperity. And the Republicans will do best like they always do when they stay on that economic message. What you think? I totally agree with you. And I'm very discouraged to see Ron DeSantis, frankly, diving into the social wars. I don't think he needs to do it. Uh, and, and I think it's a mistake for him because every time you take on one of these perilous issues, whether it's abortion or LBGTQ, whatever it is, uh, issues, you lose some people and you lose particularly young voters. Uh, young voters aren't maybe as wound up about things like inflation and regulations and stuff, but very quickly they become interested in that when they go to work and they get the idea of freedom. And by the way, one of the things Democrats have done that I think is so stupid is they're always going after gig workers and the whole Mm. uh, sort of Internet-based economy. Those young people that they are so uh, determined to win over, they like those economies. They like Uber and so forth. Uh, and I think you're right. When they start slapping restrictions on such companies, they lose young voters. So I agree with you. I want Republicans to talk about opportunity, Larry. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. And that comes from freedom and from growth. You know, Steve, the polls, you know, this article was written by this fellow Glock from the Manhattan Institute. He went back and looked at all the polls that we've looked at down through the decades. The Gallup poll asks this question constantly. The Pew poll asks this question constantly. Do you want more government services and higher taxes, or do you want lower, uh, less government services and lower taxes? And like 60 70% want fewer services, lower taxes. And these numbers never change. And why it is that Republicans, some Republicans, 
new conservatives, whatever they call themselves, have decided to abandon, uh, I'll call it the supply-side growth message, uh, in favor of the culture wars. Now, I'm look, I'm pro-life. Steve, you're pro-life. Um, we want to close the border and so forth, and we want the parents to be able to wa- you know, watch over their kids' education. But it's all a matter of degree. And you can't, the, the real populist message is prosperity, having a great job. As Liz says, having opportunity, the opportunity agenda is so wonderful. That's where the GOP has to go, Steve Moore. Yeah, look, I'm a social conservative too. And some of the crazy things that are going on with LGBTQ and so on, uh, annoy me as well. But- yes. It all comes down to the question that Ronald Reagan asked, right? Mm-hmm. Are you better off today than you were you when, when when you were four years ago? Mm-hmm. And that's how Reagan won. That's how we've won so many elections. That's in fact how Trump won as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't I can't agree with that more. I mean, you have to have a prosperity agenda. And I love the word opportunity. Mm-hmm. We are an opportunity society. We are the greatest multicultural. Uh, success story in the history of the planet where people can come into this country in, in a year or two, they're, they're prosperous. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. And it has to be an, and, and it has to be a positive message, not a message of hope. And I don't think there's enough of that in the Republican. I mean, think of the, right the Santa story. Uh, here's, the, here's the good. DeSantis teed off on the Federal Reserve the other day. It's a Wall Street Journal editorial about it. Uh, we played some sound event. Good. The Fed should be challenged because they've bungled so many things so mm-hmm. many times. Here's the bad DeSantis. He's going to the mat with Walt Disney. All right? He's going to arm wrestle with Bob Iger, the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's that's not the way to do it. Holman Jenkins had it uh, right. Hey, look, here, here's the good Trump. The good Trump issued this whole video and white paper on deregulation yesterday or the day before. That's the good Trump. The bad Trump is he's taken off on personal attack ads uh, on DeSantis. Terrible. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, yes. the economic message makes everybody look good. And, Liz, you're right. You don't lose people with the economic message. You increase your coalition. Right. It's a bigger tent. Always has been. That's exactly right. And I'm always reminded uh, of the probably the single most popular thing Donald Trump ever did when he was running for office. Remember how he would hold up a postcard and promise that in a tax rehaul, yes. they would make taxes so simple you could fill it out on a postcard. <laughs> People went nuts over mm-hmm. that. That was literally mm-hmm. polling showed that was the most popular part of his, t- even more than reducing taxes. Mm. Why? Because Americans are tired of strangulating tax laws, employment laws, having to go through hoops to become a manicurist. I mean, you know, the government is in our face, Larry, so drastically in this country. And we've seen in Europe, it doesn't work. It slows growth. It slows income growth. People don't get rich in countries which have all these regulations so that nobody can start a business easily, et cetera. Can you even imagine trying to start a business in New York? I honestly cannot. I, I don't think I would have the perseverance or energy for it. I'm an LLC, and they're killing me. I can't imagine they aren't. I'm in I both would, yeah. Connecticut and New York, two of the three or four worst states. Anyone want any advice from me? Ha ha ha! I'm just stuck. I'm stuck here. I'm a prisoner. I'm a captive. 
Because yeah. I work yeah. here. It's a disaster. I want to move the show to South Florida, West Florida, someplace but like it, that. But as you and, and Steve have pointed out, that is the story of Florida. Florida has loosened the regulations. They've made it easier to go there and start a business. So DeSantis doesn't need to go into all these byways and highways and little you know, soft spots. And by the way, I think partly he went there and others have done so because they saw what Youngkin did in Virginia. He mm. won on education. Okay, but also it wasn't all about uh, woke stuff in schools. It was also education. So let's talk about positive education mm. and maybe getting rid of some of the work rules that may mean that teachers can't stay late to help kids who are behind, things like that are so positive, but uh, I do, I, you know, I, I appreciate what he's doing in the way of getting gender, ridiculous gender studies out of three grade, th- third grade yeah. uh, itineraries and stuff. But look, I, I think there are bigger battles to be fought. He's going to win. His path to victory, in my view, uh, I don't know if he's going to win. I don't know who's going to win, but I'm just going to say he has to do the Florida versus New York yeah. editorial. All right, and you could add California, for heaven's sakes. That's what you want to do, right? The free state of Florida versus the socialist countries of New York and California. All right, the the free state of Florida versus no more internal combustion engines. Okay, it's a it's an absolutely perfect it's absolutely perfect for DeSantis. It's also perfect for Trump. My point is, it's perfect for the whole Republican Party, House, House, Senate, governors, but. Especially national office. I mean, Steve, uh, are they, you gotta, we should propose this. Okay. We need to have a floor vote in the house on banning the internal combustion engine. All right. We need to see you have that vote. Anyway, kids, that's the music. We're cooked. Liz Peak, thank you very much. Steve Moore, thanks. Have a great show. Folks, we'll be back next weekend. I'm Cudlow. Have a great weekend.